0: Um, by one of our organisers here. So This is what this camera is for, and if it's any good it might be sold by Excalibur, the party's uh, cultural merchandise arm, at a later date. Now I'd like to begin by talking about the elections. When Derek Beacon was elected in the early to mid-1990s in the East End of London, when the previous leader and founder of the party was still alive, the media ran it for weeks. There was 24-7 coverage for about seven days after that, a victory on the Isle of Dogs. Now we've won well over 50 councillors, and although there's been quite a lot of media coverage, it's been damped down, and much of the Liberal establishment has just shrugged their shoulders and said, oh well, it's happened, it's a bit of reaction to the post-war mass immigration, Uh, some white working class people are alienated, it's unfortunate, it's unfortunate what happened in Barking and Dagenham, but there we are. The truth is that there have been parties, movements, leagues, and groups to the right wing of the Tories since the 1920s. And until the 90s, with the exception of a couple of people in Blackburn when the Tories stood down, no one's ever got elected at all. So, more has been achieved in about five or six years than has ever been achieved by the British right, so to say, heretofore. So, 50 have been elected. And the truth is now that we're knocking at a door where 80, 150, 200, 280, 300 and more can be elected. And it won't take that much more. Let's look at Barking and Dagenham. I know at least a third, maybe 40% of the people are elected personally. Now, that campaign Barking was basically conducted by three people one of whom was fanatical and basically has visited, in one way or another, over a a two-and-a-half to three-year period, the better part of 60,000 addresses in the Barking and Dagenham area, and he's the chap who's leader of the opposition group, on that council. When Hodge was accused by her own liberal media of betrayal and of letting the BNP Fox in and this sort of thing, she was actually just reacting on the door to something that was truthful. Indeed, the Liberal media is split about her. Some say she shouldn't have said it, and the woman's a fool, and we should never have elected her an MP in that sort of area or other, anyway, and other people are saying she's just being an honest woman. <clears throat> the politicians uh, lie all the time, the media accuses them of treachery and mendacity when they tell the truth they don't like it if people vote for this organisation. Now Margaret Hart had a bit of form before she became MP for a particular part of Barking and Dagenham, She used to be the head of Islington Council, which is where Blair and Cherie had their large house before he became Premier, after the landslide in 97. Now, when she was in Islington, there were several scandals that convulsed that borough, which is an inner-city, sort of Labour-rotten borough, um, a left, largely middle-class, extreme-left, rotten borough. There's even a shrine, believe it or not, to Lenin, in a side room in Islington Town Hall, the man who sort of led the Communist to power after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. It's a legacy of the Fabian past, but you can see, if you've got a shrine to Lenin in a corner, the sort of people uh, who are wandering around Islington Town Hall and its precincts. Now, when she was in charge, there was a major paedophile scandal in a large number of children's homes in the borough of Islington, and this was used to her, against her in her own constituency, by the people who have ultimately become the opposition, embarking the that. Now, without going into all the gory details, she had a PC program whereby nobody could make any accusations against homosexual men. This meant that homosexual networks that had invaded themselves into certain uh, young people's homes and halfway houses within the Islington area couldn't be condemned. One of these individuals later died of AIDS when he became an education officer in Hackney, a neighbouring Redbelt Borough, several years later. She apologised when the sweedy and liberal-minded evening standard, the local ragdown in the capital, ran a campaign about this, but it was all a bit too late, really. Uh, Blair made a minister of the children in the latter stages of the first Labour term, which certain mainstream media outlets had the temerity to oppose. So this is Margaret Hodge. But Margaret Hodge, in some ways, when she knocked on eight out of ten doors, barking and, and they said we're voting BMP, and some of them may have even just said it to annoy her, who knows? There's a degree to which it fed into a terror that people like her have. Because amongst this largely sort of bourgeois left that goes with Blair, and that are called new Labour, and whose project this is since 97, and they've been in power almost a decade now, they fear that they've lost, in part, certainly psychically and emotionally, the indigenous working class. They fear it. Their politics are almost entirely bourgeois left, and come out of the universities and colleges where they are. There was quite a bit of campaigning in the media before the barking vote, and elsewhere, that old Labour is losing the white working class to the British National Party. In actual fact, there were quite a good votes in middle class areas, but it feeds a paranoia, and it feeds a fear in Labour because all their careers they've said that they're in favour of working people, that they're in favour of their rights, that they're in favour of trade unions and all the rest of it. Well I'm afraid that most of the people embarking in London have moved there because of the Ford works and many of them were bombed out of the east end of London during the war and it's one of the largest essentially, but no longer white council estates in the south of England and also many of the people weren't just bombed out of the east end, they left in the post war period, after Atlee's government, 45 through 51. And why did they leave the east end of our capital city? They left the east end of our capital city because whole districts and boroughs, like Hackney, like parts of Islington, like Haringey, like Tower Hamlets, like Bowen, Bethnal Green, and so forth, have been completely taken over by third world immigration. There are 45,000 Asian Muslims in Tower Hamlets borough alone alone, irrespective of any other minorities. And that is why, when respect stood in Tower Hamlets, they got in. Because you basically have a white ultra-elected linked to old and communism competing against a half-caste Jewish New Labour MP who supported the Iraq War. And the Muslims, even though they had parties of their own, which say they must have nothing to do with Western democracy and must organise within their own community against ours within this country as part of an international nation campaigning against respect. Respect with Galloway still got in. This was in his phase when he wasn't pretending to be a cat and wearing red slippers and all the rest of the stuff that he usually gets up to. Now, what's happening is that more and more of our people, irrespective of region, irrespective of class and social background, are becoming radically alienated from the political system in this society. North, south, east and west. It used to be said that the BNP was just a northern party. Liberals amongst themselves would say it's a party of ghettoised people who can't get out into the suburbs. They said it would never get out of the northwest and go into Yorkshire. That happened. They said it would never get anyone voted in the home counties. That happened. They said it would never get anyone voted in the south of England, never mind the southeast of England. That happened. And so on. There are regions of the power country which are neglected, like the southwest, for example, where UKIP is strong, and East Anglia, and so on. But we have representation now in the north of the country, the south of the country, and the middle of the country. And if you've been to Cardiff on Glasgow recently, you'll discover that the problems that they have are identical to things that are going on in Manchester and Leeds and Hull and Bradford and uh, Liverpool and Newcastle and London and Southampton and Norwich and Bristol and elsewhere. The centre of Glasgow has largely been quote-unquote taken over by immigration from the subcontinent of India and beyond. So it's happening everywhere, and although the party is quite underdeveloped in Wales and Scotland, New Labour have handed to various interests there, and they've introduced devolved assemblies, much of which are second-rate, second-tier, rotten borough assemblies, uh, which a considerable proportion, particularly, of the Welsh actually voted against. But they're there, and Labour's in love with democracy. There are elections all the time. Uh, Prescott wanted to introduce, when he had time for it, wanted to introduce <laughs> some, a crack assembly in the northeast of England, and 80% of Georges voted against it. Liberals are in love with democracy, but they won't allow plebiscitary or direct democracy. They wouldn't allow people to vote through their televisions on hanging, for example. They wouldn't allow people to vote on immigration, or membership of the European Union, or having the IRA in government, or the castration of paedophiles, or the dealing with drug dealers. Or the deportation of foreign criminals. They wouldn't have a mass democracy and direct democracy for that sort of thing. They'll have representative elite democracy with small little groups, largely of a liberal dispensation. Have you seen controlling things from a bar? Have you seen what the Tories have been up to recently? They've elected Lexingtonian David Cameron, they've shifted the party to the left, they actually are more to the centre-left now within their own spectrum of a of opinion than they have been since he and before. So he sort of reversed 30 years of Tory drift
1: and the Thatcherite
0: period that was in part and parcel of that. Why has Cameron done this? He wrote the last Tory manifesto. Do you remember those billboards where they said, we know what you're thinking, we're thinking what you're thinking about immigration? People in United Against Fascism and similar groups used to creep out late at night and deface Tory posters and say, Don't vote racist. That manifesto that Howard fronted was written by Cameron and now says he doesn't believe in any of it. That was only six months or two a year ago. He's now become Tory leader. He says they favour everything green. Believe Mm. me, Tories are not green. It gets in the way of their jags. (laughs) This party is actually more ecologically minded philosophically if one wishes to concentrate on that particular issue, then they are. And the irony is that there's two ways of looking at Cameron. Because Cameron's just a sniveling left-wing Tory without any ideas who will say anything to get in. But if he was in a fantasy world and a sort of virtual reality zone, a secret patriot, he is doing everything right. To alienate a part of his corvo and to leave a wider and wider spectrum of opinion for something to the right of the Tories. Forget Veritas and the golden one, forget the United Kingdom Independence Party, there's now essentially one party to the right of the Tories that stands for everything they stood, said that they stood for in the 1960s when people like Enoch Powell were making a bit of a fuss. So this whole area is opening up for us and in a sense this is the best chance the radical right party has ever had in contemporary British history. You have a sordid social democratic regime led by Blair who's going on and on and on with increasing backbiting from his own, with fighting around him. He looks sort of dull, he looks aged, he looks slightly sordid and broken down. He wants another job in the EU or the United Nations within a year to two years. You see him in the House of Commons, Prescott's to one side of him, Dumpy, thinking about the ex-affair, thinking about his loss at croquet recently, thinking about (laughs) the great and the residences, worrying whether he's working class or middle class because he has these debates with people all the time, but no one else is bothered. And on the other side, there's Brown, dour, sullen, plotting against Blair but agreeing with him on everything, saying he's now tacitly against the morality of the Iraq war when he felt fanatic saying he's less right-left Labour than Blair when he was on the Cabinet financing all of his decisions, and they've really been running the country together for nine years. They did a deal in a restaurant, yes, in Islington, that we mentioned before. When Blair became leader, Blair was considered to be more English, more Southern, more amenable to Daily Mail and Daily Express readers, tourist, middle-class people they needed to convert a new Labour to get them in, to get 44 per cent rather than the 36 that they had under Kinnock and Smith, remember them? And now we have a situation where labour is being ground down by the alienation and hostility of the indigenous population of these islands, which means the white population, largely but not exclusively, of British towns and cities, particularly within England. And the situation is open, the door is essentially halfway open, Although this party is still quote-unquote demonised, it's less demonic than it ever was. It's more semi-mainstream to mainstream than it ever was. I spoke at a meeting in Huddersfield six months ago. There were 250 people there. It was an utterly mainstream audience. Labour couldn't get 20 people in Huddersfield. The Tories are two or three old ladies in a coffee morning in Huddersfield. The average age of a Tory activist is 67 and a half. Labour had 420,000 members before Blair came in, it's now 220,000, and they lied to the Electoral Commission about their membership a couple of years ago. These are dying political elites. But many people come up to me and say, why has happened, why has what has happened occurred in our country since 1945? We once ruled in 1902, a quarter of the planet, and a fifth of its population, and we were the most powerful country on earth, and now, with the lackey of the Americans, 14 to 15% of England is non white, yes. 14 to 15% of England, under present census, uh, which itself is probably a partial underestimate, given illegals and others, is non white. 10, 11, 12% of the population is non white. 17 million people enter the country every year, half of them white, half of them not. They move around, they leave. 200 million people pass through our airports and a related space. Each year, we become a transient zone. There are six million immigrants at least, between 600,000 and 1.2 million of them here illegally. These are people who are settled and, in a sense, are now part of the population. How did they come here? They came here because the Nationality Act was passed in 1948, where 30,000 passports—that's all—was distributed in the West Indies, Caribbean, and in the Asian subcontinent. But they then brought their families, and they brought more of their families, and they brought extended families. because liberals both by intent and by disregard, didn't realise that these cultures on the whole, West Indians excepted, have extended families. A family can be thrown to people. It's a clan. So people come here and then, offer, and then they begin to create economic structures for themselves. And more people come in, and yet more people come in. We also signed, in the wake of the Second World War, into a raft of interconnected pieces of legislation. These were called refugee, economic migrant and asylum pieces of legislation. It was part of the never-again culture of the immediate post-war era that this government bought into. This means that if you're suffering oppression, you can come here and you can claim that you're seeking asylum. There are people here who are Iraqi communists. We are now occupying Iraq but they won't go back because they're in danger against militants that we're fighting against, even though we've occupied Iraq. We can't even send people back to a country that we're occupying because we've signed bits of paper after the Second World War saying that their rights can't be infringed. At present, there are people in Belmarsh Prison, although many of them have sort of open access, revolving doors of principle, with Belmarsh. There's 13 of them. Many of them said on tape, on their own phones, on their own emails, that they want to kill the British people, they want to blow up Parliament, they want to assassinate the Queen, although some say she's representative of a non caliphate caliphate, and therefore they question that, but they want to blow up almost everybody else, but they can't be imprisoned, because it's against their human rights, and they can't be sent back to, in, on the whole, Algeria, because they might be tortured by the militaristic regime in Algiers and Iran. And we can't have that. So we have a memorandum of understanding between our government and theirs, but they get their lawyers to challenge that in the European Court, because we're a part of the European Union. So we can't deport people who have said that they want to bomb, and when they go into court they say they want to bomb again, but we can't deport them because their human rights can be infringed. The Home Secretary says, ah, I've got a cunning plan. It was Blunkett's plan, then it was Clark's plan, now it's tough talking, quote unquote, John Reed's plan. Let me tell you something about John Reed, parenthetically. John Reed began in the Socialist Labour League, which was a Trotskyist party, which is a forerunner of the Workers' Revolutionary Party. He now claims he's the hard man, quote unquote, of the Labour right. Well, ho, ho, ho. There's a degree to which he has introduced via Clark's Bermuda predecessor, who left because of the foreign prisoner scandal that we'll come on to in a moment, he has institu- instituted this idea whereby people can be held under 24 hour, 24 7 permanent house arrest. Their emails are watched, their mobile is listened to, their terrestrial line, if they possess one, is listened to, their fast ditto is watched, and there's somebody typing the colloquial Arabic out into passable English to see what they're saying. Darby, darby, dar Because Arabic, most of these people are into Algerian. Why are they Algerian? Because they're members of the armed Islamic group. What is the armed Islamic group? It's GIA, which is the paramilitary wing of the feast inside Algeria. There's been a civil war going on in Algeria over the last 20 years, and over 160,000 have died. We allowed these militants to come here because the French wouldn't have them. France is the old colonial power in Algeria. There was a deal done with these militants in the 90s when Major was premier. Don't bomb here, but you can stay here even if you export what you want. But that was rescinded a couple of years ago, when it is believed Osama bin Laden said all bets are off, and Britain is a target as well, because they have supported the Americans and the Zionists in relation to Afghanistan and Iraq, and a looming war that could be coming with Iran. So we have a situation where we can't deport people who say they want to bomb us because their human rights might be infringed. And regimes that we've set up might infringe the rights of people, and we therefore can't deport them. The logical thing to do, of course, would be to resile from all of these post-war liberal treaties and endorsements and codices and say, we'll make a big bonfire of all of them and we'll take control of their own law and the jurisprudence, which is the philosophy of law, in our own Ireland and in our own country and relation to our own state. And you'll go back on the next plane, double quick time. And if you don't like it, well there we are. You know, and um...
1: Now let's go on to look at the foreign
0: prisoner scandal. Now, this scandal, which has been going on for 20 to 30 years, uh, all the time when Basher was talking tough and all the rest of it. Now, the interesting thing about the Home Office is it's an enormous department. That consists of several in one: immigration and nationality, and sort of prisons, and what in America would be called homeland security. I mean, it's all bobsed and pushed together in one great colossus. Now, when Heard, who was a sort of liberal patrician Tory under Thatcher, he became Home Secretary. In his autobiography, the first day in the department, the chief civil servant said to him, "Afraid, minister, you can't do anything about crime." He said, "Pardon?" He said, well, I know you've got some big ideas and big things and all the rest of it, but crime's exponential, you know. It's due to inequality in society. There's nothing we can do about it. He said, look, I've just got here. Don't tell me there's nothing I can do about it. He said, well, it's in the statistics. Don't argue with me, minister. It's yes, minister, this sort of thing, isn't it? Don't argue with me. Uh, We can't do anything. Occasionally they have spasms. Howard put quite a lot of people in prison." He chained pregnant female prisoners to beds and all this, and got Willicombe to front for him because it was controversial with the media, which is what politicians do, they get the deputy out in front when it's difficult and they're hiding, and all this. But still, nothing occurred, and the truth is that prison will have little effect, because prison is a soft option, and if you want to actually reduce crime in this society you have to do certain salient things. One is you have to look at certain areas of crime which almost no major politician, and certainly not the David Camerons of this world, will ever go near. A third of all crimes committed by immigrants, irrespective of race, ethnicity and culture. A half of all crime committed by the same number of people who go round and round and round again in the criminal justice system. It's called recidivism. Your old man was a lad, his dad was, their auntie ran an escort agency out of a mobile phone, you know, it's in the family. They're used to doing it, they go round and round and round in the courts. Your first conviction is sixteen. You go to tagging and you boast to your mates, look at what I've got, and this sort of thing. So a half committed by the same number of people going round and around, a third's committed by immigrants, and a half of all fiscal, economic look at your wallet, opportunistic crime is drug related. So you've got immigrants, drugs, and old lads doing it again and again and again. So what, in my opinion, you need to do is shift a large number of these immigrants out so crime will reduce, that's point one. Point two, you need to look at drugs. Now why do people take drugs? They take them at every level. David Cameron has refused to answer questions as to whether he may have taken cocaine when he was a student. But he was part of a sect that made a lot of money in the 1990s in the trash sort of boom, the bond boom that occurred in the City of London. When Merrill Lynch types could earn 450,000, 460,000 in a year in 1994, before the big dip in the stock market at the end of the 90s. And cocaine was part of that culture. And he won't say that he didn't take it, which is politicians speak for the possibility of the contrary. So he's hardly going to be too tough on drugs, is he? The way you deal with drugs essentially is as follows people take them because they're born out of their minds by the nature of this society. You have to make the society more interesting for them. You have to reintroduce things like national service. You have to introduce <laughs> ideas of patriotic you purpose, have to You have to make sure that people in their recreational time do something which is constructive for the society. You have to channel the energies of people. Another thing that you could do is random drug testing. In many American schools, Particularly in black areas, but not exclusively so. When they go in through the doors, they have metal detectors to take the poshes and the knives and the guns. Yes, the guns off these gang members, because in their puffer jackets, without their being tooled up, they're not quite as hard as they were when they're prancing about for these sorts of things. You do the same for drugs. You introduce random drug testing in the private, the public sector, the military, in prisons where drugs are actually the currency inside prison. And there's another thing you can do. There's another thing you can do. You take some of the key drug barons, the ones who are behind the people who are behind the people who are behind the people who stand in the streets, in the street corners, in places like Camden. I'll tell you a fact, if you go to Camden Tube Station on Friday or Saturday evening, there will be five blokes who come up to you, at least in a quarter-hour period, if you're getting money out of a cash dispenser, in a public space. This is supposed to be policed. And they'll say, do you want any pills, mate? And they're not talking about aspirin, and a lot of them will be Kosovans and there'll be other people. Now what you do is you take five of them, ten of them, who have got form as long as your arm, you find out there's a couple of murders either here or abroad, and you execute them on television. You execute them on television, and you say that you've done it, and you show the people that you It, you will find that the middling level of drug dealers and people are into this culture and people think it's cool and people think they can get a lot of jewellery and a lot of bling and so on out of it driving around in their cars they will dip down very considerably liberals will say it's cruel and it's wow. harsh and you're not respecting their, criminal, their human rights but in Saudi Arabia I know a chap who works in Saudi Arabia and three Bangladeshis on a plane heading to Riyadh were found with drugs inside their mouths tape inside the mouth and they were taken out, an imam was present, they were given a sharia trial, they were beheaded in front of the airport. Two hours after touchdown in Riyadh. And this is a key ally of the West, Saudi Arabia, a country for which, yeah, for for you which know we all have influence, especially. And there's a degree to which we have to toughen up in this society, because at every level, in the courts, in the police, in the judiciary, in academic life, in the media, we have become softer, and more reflexive, and more liberal, and more decadent. And there is a degree to which when a vanguard group like Muslims look at us, look at looking at us from the outside in, they see a society which in some respects is there for the taking. They see weakness, they see the absence of a warrior society, irrespective of the stuff that gets on CNN and on international network news about what's going on in Iraq. That's the tough edge of the West. But internally, here, they see wetness. They see a population that believes in nothing. They see a population that's mired in materialism. They see a population whose cities are changing out of all recognition. When our men fought in 1914-18 and 1939-45, through did they fight for the society that we're now living in? Did they fight for becoming a minority in Leicester, which has already happened? if you add all the other groups together in an aggregate sum? Did they fight for the fact that Birmingham, England's second city, will have, in a finite period, could it be five, may it be eight, could it be 13 years from now, but it will happen on present trends, a non-white majority? There are parts of London where that's gone already, where white liberals, for example, lawyers and other people, are elected by different ethnic groups to arbitrate between them, because they all dislike each other up to a certain extent, they will have beasts with each other, All Asian groups in this society come from India and the Indian subcontinent. In 1948, they committed large genocides against each other. They brought all those tensions, particularly Sikhs and Muslims, here. They look at each other, and they in turn are looking at us. No one really knows what's going to happen, because liberals have theories about life which are false. When Blair was at college, his first political act other than being in a silly rock band and this sort of thing, was to go on an anti-national front march. Because Blair knows what he's against, far more than he could be said in some respects, to know what he's for. All these people know what they're against. And they're against this organisation pretty much, and what it stands for. But if you ask them what they're for, well, you know, what are we for? Blair was asking recently, what is Britishness? And he said, tolerance. Tolerance. Fair play. When you when you Hit, when you don't, you hit the ball of cricket, snick, and it goes through to the wicked people you walk. Well I'm afraid it's not that that's admirable in its way, in an old school sort of a way, but that's not what it's about. Britishness is about glory and power and heroic vitality and being male or female, not some combination of the two. It's about being proud of being white because you have to be British to be white, and you have to be white to be British. (laughs) Now in the 1960s, which of course Blair's generation come out of, they all come out of that generation. They rebelled against their parents, they rebelled against traditional Britain, they said the family was old hat, and that men and women were interchangeable, and you didn't need to hang criminals, and you didn't need national service, and as actually said in '48, when the Nationality Act was passed, all the races of the world need to be mixed together because then there'll be no war. Well, I'm afraid that if you actually mix all the groups in the world there'll be endless war. Conflict, strife, civil disorder, mental disorder, and general unpleasantness for all, including others as well as ourselves, because you will internalise conflict within societies that are no longer really coherent social groupings anymore. They're just zones where people happen to be living. We're living in the sort of British part of an international zone, because the whole world has come here to live. Because as capital moves around the world, a bloke in the city of London presses his thumb on a screen, 400 million dollars and pounds and euros circle around the screens in other markets in the world. But if capital moves, Labour moves. And immigration is Labour, because there are six billion humans on Earth. Two billion are sort of economically all right in comparison to the others. Two billion are in the middle. Two billion are in utter misery. Utter misery. And a significant number of the four billion who aren't quote-unquote in the West, which technologically includes Japan, want out. They want to get into the West. They want a bit of this action. They want to take it for themselves. They regard others in their group who can't or won't do it as weedy. And they regard people who stand in their way here as something to respect if they stand up to them, but weedy if they are, are allowed to come in and push. And they're coming here because they want into the West. Although a third of Pakistani men name their children Osama as one of their names, after Osama bin Laden, in a way he's partly lost with his own group. Because polling that the UN has done indicates that half of the people in the quote-unquote South, half of the people in the Third World want to come here, not just to Britain, but the whole of the West. They want in. But to have the lifestyle of a middle-class American person, two fridges, obesity, pizzas on tap, 56-channel TV, four cars, all the rest of it. You need three worlds. You need the economic and ecological substructure of three planets. Answer: so we're not going to get that. And as always in life, it will not be fair, it will not be equitable, it will not, beyond the remit of one's own family and immediate circumstances, be too pleasant. But in this life you have to stand for your own group. Charity begins at home. It begins in your own family. And in your own nationality. It's not about hatred of the others, it's about standing for oneself. And this is something that, in a sense, the radical right has to learn. One of the reasons it's never got anywhere in the United States is partly because laws haven't been passed and people can come out with any old toss. What people have to understand is that we are now in a situation where just moaning about immigration and other related matters isn't enough. The immigrants are here because of liberalism and because our leaders believe in a philosophy that allows them to come here. Everything is ideological. Gay marriage is ideological. Abortion is ideological. Not having the death penalty is ideological. Fighting in Iraq is ideological. Blair and I disagree about the meaning of life. That's why we're in different parties. And if his ideas triumph, our people will, over time, go down will become a minority in their own society, they will deculturalise, they won't be able to manifest what they are racially. When I was at university, everyone said, oh, racial ideas are very dangerous, you know, we can't have any of that. But what they misunderstand is that even our intellectual elite has cultural interests which are based upon race and ethnicity, because people create spiritually out of what they are. It's not hyperluting nonsense. If you don't have a society which is based upon what you are, you don't know who you are. Many of our young people almost sort of of wander around in a fog, in an alcohol-induced haze. They have no idea who they are. They think the British culture, English culture, is posh and best. They've been miseducated for 40 years in comprehensive schools and told almost nothing about their own culture. Blair sends his children to different schools, the sort of school I went to. Now, these comprehensives were introduced by left-wing idealists who said they were in favour of the working class. But they didn't want any hierarchy, they didn't want any exams because people fail exams and it's unequal. They didn't want any competitive sport because it's unduly masculine and people who are crippled can't compete. It's all very sad, you know. Well, life isn't like that! Life is unfair! (coughs) We're all the sons and daughters of nature. when you have a child, you walk round the, uh, the ward, there are and born without eyes and without limbs. Life is unequal
1: and hierarchical,
0: and liberals have developed interconnected theories about why it isn't so and why it's not nice to say so. Well, who we cares about being nice when one's society and the existence of one's family and one's future prospects is threatened? Do you think we ruled a quarter of the world once by being nice we had a certain grandeur, we had a certain of oblige, but we were out for ourselves as a nation and a group, and we had a ruling class that was snobbish, that was socially exclusive, that was inbred, but they had a bit of patriotism to them. Now there is a ruling class that has no patriotism at all, has no identification with the indigenous population at all. It's a shame to say what British culture is. If you said to Blair, are you sure proud of being white, he would say, well, you know, I don't really want to get into that. He doesn't want to get into it, because he is frightened of his own people, he is frightened of his own identity, he can only come into this room with bodyguards. They go everywhere with these sorts of people, because although they say they love the Muslims, they've alienated because they killed over 100,000 of them who were in Iraq, but they invaded the country to give them democracy. We have democracy in Birmingham, but ballot reading is indebted in the central areas of Birmingham, to such a degree that the Electoral Commission said it's like a third world society, a banana republic, in England's second city, and people think that things can go on as they are without a political response. Well ladies and gentlemen, this party is a political response. People have to reject Labour, you knock on these doors, when you canvass, you knock on a door, you get the eye of the person. You say, I'm I'm campaigning on social issues in your area. Once you've got their attention, you know, the TV fog has lifted for a moment. You're talking to them, Englishman to Englishman, Britain to Britain. You say, I'm from the British National Party. People come out and grab hold of your hand and say, yeah, I'm with you. Because they're fed up with what has happened to this country, and they want to change. Whether they're middle class or working class, whether they're northern or southern, All of our people are ultimately the same nationality, we care for them, we care for our own, and we want our culture and our state and our nation back, for us, in our own land. Support this party, vote for it, and work for it in the future. Thank you very much.